Yes. Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John. The back of your Bible, 1 John. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in Him and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you make me a vessel, a pipe, a conduit that is not corroded on the inside with blockages so that the water of this text will flow cleanly, fully, and powerfully to our minds, to our hearts, and to our walk with Jesus, Your glorious eternal Son whom You have sent to destroy the work of the devil. Do that for us. And don't leave us to only hear it, but by Your Spirit to be changed from one degree of glory to another by it. Amen. First John is unrelenting. If you were here, or it's on the internet, you heard last week's sermon. John doesn't stop just because we do. He just flows on. So I just want just for 30 seconds to give you a reminder of what we saw last week leading up to this point. The flow is that Believers 
are those who have been birthed or born of God. And that's why they are those people who are abiding in Jesus. That they are those people who are practicing righteousness. Last verse of chapter 2. They are those people who are being conformed to the image of Christ now during this life. If you remember the end of verse 2, we shall, at Jesus' second coming, not yet, but then we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then He connected it to our lives now. And everyone who thus hopes, that your hope? Hope in Him that way? Then you are one of those who is being purified. You're purifying yourself through your hope just as Jesus is pure. Okay, that's where we were last week. And now John continues to reveal something else about true Christians. He says, they are those persons who know or or who feel there is something in them that needs to be destroyed. The theology... Jesus saves people by destroying. Like a doctor saves a patient by injecting with a little bag and an IV constantly for a few days, injecting antibiotics into the body to attack and to destroy the bacteria that will kill that person. Under otherwise. I know that because my eldest daughter wouldn't be alive if she lived a hundred years earlier. Those who are being saved are those who feel their sickness. And they want it destroyed. To have Jesus as your Savior means you are welcoming Him as the destroyer of your sin. Now, if you're there in the text, I I want to start in the middle of it. At the end of verse 8, because like a tether ball, you got a pole, and and the ball's swinging around that pole. This is the pole. The the last part of Verse 8 is the centerpiece around which the rest of this whole text is flowing. You see it? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay. Now, if you love Bible, then you start to think, okay, well, great. What does that mean? What does it mean to destroy the works of the devil? So before we go to what does it mean to destroy, we have to, wait a minute, what are the works of the devil? What is he referring to? And to that, 
we just go to its immediate context and find out. Let John tell us. So, so notice, right before our main sentence, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, notice what He said right before it, and then what He says right after that sentence. Beginning of verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For or because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Do you hear it? Then our sentence. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then he continues on. And you can feel the logic. Therefore, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on making a practice of sinning like that because he has been born of God. There are those whose father is the devil, and then if something happens called being born of God, he says they no longer make a practice of sinning, or else they would still belong to the devil. Okay, this, I'm going to go really slow because I, just, I want you to look at your Bible and just see is Joe interpreting this for what it says? Let's just deal with his plain words first and we'll start to see, okay, what does he mean by this? He just says, those who are practicing sinning belong to the devil. Then our sentence. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And then, therefore, no one who is born of God, God's child, not the devil's, no one who is born of God practices sin. So it seems to be clear that in this context, that what John means by the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy is our practicing sinning. See, the logic of verses 8 and 9 is simple. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So when people sin, that's a work of the devil. It's Satan's work. It's not like old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, and he doesn't sin on our behalf. He's not sinning. Those who are living, practicing sin, the devil's not doing that. He is tempting them to do that. So when they do it, in that sense, it's the work of Satan. It's also our work. We sin and we're accountable. But he is tempted and we have given in. And Satan's work is accomplished. And this must mean, therefore, that what Jesus came to destroy in this text was not just our guilt before God, providing absolute pardon and forgiveness. Paul calls it justification. It's all true, utterly true and important. 
where legally before God, our guilt has been eradicated by Jesus' substitution, but He cannot just mean that in this text because of His wording. But He means here, He came to destroy the actual practicing of sinning in the lives of born-again people. Now, sinning. Let's go back to the beginning of the text. John defines what he means there. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, there, there's his definition. Now, he doesn't mean Roman law. He doesn't mean civil law in particular provinces or cities. He means God's law. His revealed moral law in Scripture. Now, remember the context. There false teachers rising up within the church and false followers following them. And there's this theology, this incipient Gnosticism, this kind of thing. We're super spiritual. We're in the know. And almost very what we call New Age-ish now. And along with that was the implication because of their philosophy of the physical world, physical bodies, that's just all evil in and of itself because it's physical. Very Greek idea. Therefore, if you're in the know, what you do now in that physical body that ties us down and salvation is really being freed from the body one day. Therefore, what you do, professing Christians, in your body, how you let your fist hit somebody, or how you practice sexuality, or how you defraud others down here on earth in the body really doesn't matter, ultimately. As long as you have the right knowledge and you're enlightened, that's what seems to be in the background of what he's addressing. That's why he makes statements like, just know for sure, he who practices righteousness defined by thou shall not murder or commit adultery, or fornication, or worship the Lord your God with all your heart, or love your brother as you love yourself. Define that way. What you're doing in the body, those are the ones who are righteous. They're wrong. Making any sense yet? Let me just take another pause now. That's the implication that they're dealing with back then. That implication of what the Christian life is, that error is rampant today in present American evangelicalism. It just flows from a different theology than their theology. It flows something like this. Final salvation, the resurrection, going to heaven. In the future, I'm safe. I'm going to be fine with God forever. I'm saved in Jesus. And to get there from the time I make my profession of faith, and then die, or Jesus comes back, to make it there, in between that time, what I literally actually am doing and how I'm living has nothing really to do 
with making it there. So God's commands like do not steal, don't divorce, don't commit adultery, don't, I mean, do love your neighbor, on and on. No, 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 no. We're not under law. We're saved by grace. And let me just say, those words are rightly understood are absolutely true. And they're absolutely biblical. We are saved by grace apart from any works of obedience. Let me say, if you understand what the Bible is talking about when Paul speaks like that, it's absolutely true. In other words, let me just go back a moment. We are doomed by our own nature and our own choices to God's judgment. We cannot save ourselves. And nobody is saved by anything they ever do. You cannot pull the right lever, jump into a pool of water and be baptized, clean up your old life and live a better life, and therefore God will now say, look at that, because you did that, I will now cause you to come alive to my Son in Jesus. I will cause you to be born again. No, there's nothing you can do. We are saved by God's grace and grace alone apart from anything we do. He brings us alive. That's absolutely biblical and absolutely true. But what's happening today is people think, oh, not just new birth, coming alive to Jesus, but final salvation is irrelevant to anything that is happening in your life in this mortal body, during this mortal life. And they are dead wrong. It goes something like this, that it's believed that as long as you agree with the Jesus doctrine, He's my Savior, I don't want to go to hell, you've asked Him to come into your heart, then you will be saved on that day no matter what, you will be saved on that day even if for the rest of your life you go on practicing a sinful lifestyle. You will be saved because you ask Jesus into your heart even if you constantly continue to live or walk, in John's terms, in darkness and not in light. And it is that that the Apostle John, by the Spirit, that teaching, that idea that he is coming against, that he's correcting. So, up to this point, let's put together what we've seen. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which are the practicing of sinning. Now, it is a lawlessness, a lawless. God says, My desires say this. They're not in tune with what He says. Therefore, I'm going to practice my law. My desires. That's what He means by the works of the devil living that way. That's what He came to destroy. See that so far? Then, John gives two answers to how does Jesus destroy the sinful, walking in darkness, 
practicing of sin lifestyle. How did he do this? Two answers, and they are inseparable. The first answer is right there in verse 8, the second part. The reason the Son of God came, or excuse me, appeared, same thing for Him. The reason Jesus appeared, that's the answer. First answer, how is He destroying the works of the devil? Practicing of sin is by His appearing. Because He appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. The way Christ destroys sin is by appearing. He means by becoming a human being. He means by His incarnation. Just flip backwards one page. The way that John began this letter, verse 2 of chapter 1, listen to him. The life, and you're going to make it clear, he's talking about God, the eternal life that was always with the Father. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it. Okay. That word manifest is the exact same word as the word appeared in chapter 3, verse 8. He means the same thing. He became human. The eternal life became one of us. He was made manifest, or He appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest, there it is again, to us, appeared. So John means, how did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? By showing up and becoming one of us. But he doesn't merely mean, okay, there's the baby in the manger, it's all done. Clearly, John, he became human for the purpose of dying the substitutionary death. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He did it by his living, his perfect obedience, his dying and his rising from the dead. And John's already made that clear in chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, the one who appeared, came, was really one of us, is the propitiation for our sins. It was in Him where the wrath of God against our sin was removed. Judgment was fulfilled on Him. And thus it's satisfied and there's no more judgment upon those for whom He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's the first answer. He appeared. Now what's the second answer to Him destroying this practicing of sin? It's in the next verse, verse 9. So let's just... Pick up the end of verse 8 and get the flow. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, that's the logic, I argue, therefore, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now let's pause for a moment before we see the rest of what he's going to say. 
A Christian's practicing of sin, that he said here, is conquered or destroyed when a person is born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So, it's not enough for Jesus to come and to die and to rise. For that person to have the devil's works destroyed on their behalf. That's not enough by itself. But that person there must be born of God. Otherwise, the works of the devil in their practicing of sinning and on judgment day remain in sin that will cause this darkened rebellion against God without repentance will remain that person's lifestyle unless they are born again. And see, nor was that new birth possible though without Jesus appearing and dying and rising to purchase that act of new birth upon that person. Both of them are necessary. Those two are intricately connected. Now, let's go back again to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for, that means because, here's the reason why, because God's seed abides in Him and He cannot keep on sinning. How come? Because he or she has been born of God. So, when John says a born-again person cannot keep practicing sinning, he must mean it's because that person has new desires. Now, you have to follow my logic here. Why is that? Because acts of sin, acts of breaking God's law, lawlessness. Or, that person got born again, and then they resisted that, and they chose not to sin then. All of that choosing is an act of the will. A will of each human being. And acts of the will don't just come out of nowhere. They come out of desires. So he's got to mean when a person is born again, there are new desires that were never there before that pop up once in a while, manifest themselves in obedience and repentance and faith and obedience and repentance and faith and obedience and repentance and faith. And that's the essence of not all the way, practicing unabated, unrepentant, sinful living. Something new has invaded them by being born of God. The Apostle Paul calls that in 2 Corinthians... A new creation. 
Jeremiah prophesied about it, calling it a new heart I will give to you. But I want you to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Because just for a moment, we're going to come back to John and say, John, I mean Paul, what do you think about what the Apostle John is saying? How, do you agree with him? Does this how you understand the Christian life also? And Paul says it in his way. Starting with verse 1. Chapter 2. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. Now listen up. And you were... Okay, implication. You no longer are dead. But you were dead. That's John's. Before you were born of God. But then you were born of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once... Paul assumes not anymore. Not like you used to. You once walked. It was your practice. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Assuming here, Christian, you're a son of God. You're born of God. But you used to be a son of disobedience. But you're no longer walking, living that way. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. Not anymore. We once lived that way. He defines it in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires. That's where all sin's coming from. Desires. The desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then here comes the big but. The Gospel but. John's you were born of God. Jesus, you must be born anew. Peter, we have been born again. Paul, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He did something. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul's way of saying it. John is saying, being born of God breaks the overwhelming dominion of unrepentant sinning. That's what he's saying. Then, he goes on and he tells us 
how a lifestyle of unrepentant sinning is broken. Let's read again verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because, because why? God's seed abides in Him. Yeah. That's the Greek word sperma. That's where we get it from. Sperma. That's why He can't or she can't continue to be a practicer of this unrepentant, sinful lifestyle because God's seed abides in Him and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. John is clearly using the human analogy of human conception and human birth. It's, it's his analogy here. He's saying the Father's sperma seed is in that child who's born of God. That's a chip off the old block now. That person has God's genetic pool. His spiritual DNA is in the person born of God. And therefore, John concludes, that's why they cannot continue to live in unrepentant practicing of sin. There's no sin in God. Oh, well, there's sin in us. We're born in sin. But there's, there's never been sin in God. If you look at verse 5, look down at verse 5. John told us there, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. God, the Father, God, the Son, the God-Man, in His humanity, never sinned. There is no sin in Him. And now, by this miracle purchased on the cross, and then His seed being injected in new birth, His spiritual hatred for sin, that DNA is put into those who are born again. We still sin. Absolutely. But what John is saying is that the, his term here, the not practicing sin, it means the presence of the indwelling seed. His DNA is causing us to hate our sin. To grieve over our sin. And to constantly, when we sin, be turning from our sinning instead of sliding down the snow of sin unabated, unstopped, apart from repentance. That's what he's saying. Just flip back again, because he's already laid this out. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So, okay. John says that if you say, and if any of you leave this service today and say, I said this, you're lying about me. I don't think you would do that. But if you say, or if you believe that now, right now, in this world, before the resurrection, before becoming exactly like Jesus, as we saw last week, when we see Him, that you can be free of all sin, you're deceived. You're lying. Okay, so what's happening? What He is saying is that the difference between those who are being saved in Jesus and those who are not, the difference is new birth. Being born of God. Which is leading to Jesus destroying ongoing lifestyles of unrepentant sinning. That's what he's saying. A Christian who has the seed of God in them cannot for very long go on being contented with patterns of rebellion against God's clear moral law. I said, you've got to get it. Oh, they may go a long time. Torment it! The world is not tormented. Christians who backslide find themselves tormented until it brings them to repentance. But if in sinful patterns of lawlessness, rebellion against God's revealed will, I'm just content to do that. And hey, once saved, always saved you most likely have never seen Jesus or known Him. Been born of God. Verse 7, chapter 1. You're right there. I think it's really helpful here where he says this, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, that's the key, isn't it? To whom does Jesus' blood apply? Who is cleansed by Jesus' blood? John's answer, right there, is that the blood of Jesus cleanses all of your sins. If you are that person who's walking in the light. So what John is saying is walking in the light is very different 
from walking in the darkness. But it does not mean sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that everything is still bent in this world and not totally pure. Nothing is totally pure in any motivation or act that we do. But we're different. You'll never be perfect or without sinfulness this side. If I just talk about being in bodies, this side of the resurrection. But it means that you see your sin. That's what walking in the light is. Because of the seed that dwells in you. You see it and you respond to it like a chip off the old block. Because of His DNA. And you hate it. You see it God's way. You agree with Him. Look at verse 9, still there in chapter 1. Because it's a parallel to what He just said in verse 7. If we confess our sins, they're there to confess. And they'll be there tomorrow, and they'll be there three days from now. This must mean to John something different than practicing sin. This present continuous action of sin, which is the verb he uses for sinning. But here, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So one who walks in the light by definition is a person who is confessing sins. Because they sin. That's what it means to walk in the light. But why are they confessing sins? That's the question. It's because God's seed abides in them. They see sin the way God sees it because God is in them in the person of the Holy Spirit. And deep down they agree. And so, they hate sin. They're sorry for sin. And the person lives a life of constant repentance and worship and worship and repentance and forgiveness because the light of the Word and the work of the seed, the Holy Spirit is constantly exposing their sin. They're not hardened by God's law. They're broken by it. And it's how I see it again. They fall onto the cross of their Savior. This is the lifestyle that is the opposite of practicing sin. It's the lifestyle of confessing, admitting, repenting, and finding victories even over sinful patterns. That's why he says, now back to our chapter, chapter 3, that's why he says in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning, this practice of sin, has either seen Him or known Him. Those are precious words. Remember last week, how are we changed? By seeing, by beholding, by knowing Him. 
in the Scripture. And we are so slowly yet truly being changed from one degree of glory to another. And all that before that one day when we see Him just as He is, it will be completed in a nanosecond. And we won't be committing acts of sin then anymore that needed to be confessed because we won't be able to sin anymore. We will be made just like Him. Down here, you'll sin, believer, but you won't be a practicer. You're different. So let, let's put it, let's put it, put it, I know it's complex and let's take ten minutes and put it all together. But we just saw He's saying that Jesus came. Jesus appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil, which those works in this context are our sinning. The the pattern of living lifestyles of sin before we were born of God, He came to destroy that. He came to give us victory over darkened, dead-to-God lifestyles of sinning that don't know Him. That's what He came to do. Secondly, we saw He he does this in two stages. First, by His incarnation. By appearing and making atonement. And it is that atonement that leads to the second. Because the atonement purchased the new birth of all who will be saved. Now you ask, stop there for a moment, couldn't God just have decided, why don't I just take this sinful human race and just cause them to be born again without all the trouble of sending God the Son to become a human being and have to suffer so horrifically and die and raise Him from the dead. I mean, did Jesus, as He says in verse 8, did He have to appear to destroy the works of the devil? Did He have to really be incarnate and do this in order for me to cause sinners to be born again? The answer is absolutely yes. Not only that, and I have no problem saying this and would challenge me later, it would be great. It would have been impossible for God to cause new birth apart from the cross of His Son. He would have been unjust. See, what Jesus did on the cross long before you were ever conceived in your parents' womb, if you were chosen before the foundation of the world, if you are that one that was predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, what He went to the cross for was to propitiate your sins and thus reconcile the Godhead to you in mercy so that after you were conceived and then born and at age 7 
or age 27, or age 39, or age 83, whenever that happened, so that He would, with the Gospel coming through the church, cause you to be born again. He didn't do anything for it. Jesus purchased that. God does it because He purchased Every believer. Christ came and He destroyed Satan's hold on all the sheep. The sheep that came before Jesus ever appeared and the sheep that have not yet been born into this world. And He did that destroying in two stages. By His appearing, making atonement, and then step two is applied, part of what He purchased. New birth. He comes and He acts in mercy. And you're just amazed. I see it. That is amazing. What a Gospel. I know Him. That's how Paul talks. You've come to know Him. Oh, let me stop, Paul says. Rather, to be known by God. You start to realize, he, the only reason I love Him is what John will go on to say, is because He loved us first. As we saw what Paul said, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were absolutely undeserving. God made us alive together with Him. And so we are down here in a battle. That's what new birth produces. That's the difference between those on this planet right now who are born again through the Gospel of Jesus and those who aren't. All of those who are born again are sinners. They sin. But it's different. They're not practicers of sin. Something has changed because God's seed abides in them and they are almost like a schizophrenic. Do we do sin because I like that right now and then, oh, why do I grieve? Because His seed, God who hates sin, is mixed with you right now and you're in this in-between world. Until, as we saw last week, When He appears, we shall see Him. And we shall be made finally, totally like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And so as I close, i got two applications. With your hand in glove, I hope, as you have heard the Word of God come through the Apostle John in this text this morning. May you, by God's grace, feel the urgency. And secondly, feel the comforting joy if you belong to Him. The urgency... 
Because what we have seen about Jesus coming to destroy the works of the devil in His cross only applies to those who have been or will be born again, evidenced by knowing Him. Let me just say it the way John says it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in Him. And He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As you search your hearts, adult or young person, be urgent about this issue. And you who belong to Him, oh, be comforted. Be comforted because you know you're His. I've been born of God. And that's because He did it. That's because He sent Jesus to die for you. He started that good work, as Paul says in Philippians, and He will complete it unto that day of salvation. Or as Paul writes so wonderfully in Romans 8, those whom He has he predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, He called them to faith and He justified them and those whom He called and justified, He glorified. It's for sure. There will be no dropout. So in this battle, Confessing, living, practicing righteousness, knowing Him, worshiping Him, being urgent. You just are doing that while knowing. That's you. That's you. He's doing that. I can go to sleep tonight and wake up trusting I will believe and I will fight. You see, if that just sounds so theological, let me just quote Bible and I'll close. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will. What word am I missing? It's work for His good pleasure. And so, as we saw last week, there's a time coming, dear born of God person, where the Lord Jesus who ascended to the Father will come back. And that day, we will all be raised and we will see Him as He is. And by seeing Him, we will be transformed finally and totally. And now, throughout this week, if you continue to place your hope in that reality, you will find yourself practicing righteousness, purifying yourself just as He is pure. Let's pray. Father, You're good.
Your salvation is marvelous. It is amazing how you take us from all differing walks of life and differing depths of sinful lifestyles. And as a child or as an old man or as a middle-aged woman or a young adult, we find ourselves absolutely captivated by your Son and the book. The Gospels, the Old and the New Testament. And through our reading of that, you say, I did that all. And we say, Hallelujah. How wonderful. How secure you have made me to be. For you have implanted your seed. You have given of the Spirit as a taste and just a down payment of that full-blown conformity to your Son in the resurrection on that day. And in that we rejoice. And so, Father, would you continue to work in us now as a community as we lift our voices to sing this glorious, joyful, experience back unto you. Amen.